Hello, and welcome back to Catch Me Up to Speed. I'm Joan Obra. And I'm Ralph Gaston. And we're your hosts of this podcast. Now, if you've listened to previous episodes, you'll know that we're two former journalists turned coffee farmers. And now that we're no longer making the news, we're focused on helping you analyze it. Especially when people who want to stay in power or gain power manipulate news narratives. And oh man, Ralph, I mean, come on now. Look at this massive power play in America since our last episode. Yeah, there's a lot that's gone on in the post-election world. It's frankly too much to go over in detail. And also the day-to-day really wasn't truly relevant. Mm-hmm. Look, guys, we hope this holiday season brought you a break from tracking the news closely. Because let's be honest, up until the election, everybody was tracking the news really closely, right? Mm. Um, But afterwards, I mean, we've been super busy harvesting coffee and roasting and shipping out holiday orders. So following all this minutia post-election was just not an option for us. Instead, we stayed focused on the arc of the power play. And that's that Trump's team brought roughly 60 cases to various courts. We're talking at the state level, and they even tried for the Supreme Court, as you guys know. All but one of these lawsuits either lost or were dismissed due to lack of standing. That's right. At this point, Joe Biden's win has been legally certified by the states. Now, we're awaiting the formal acceptance of the Electoral College's votes, which happens in the new Congress, and they are seated in January. So the momentum for overturning the voting results in Trump's favor has pretty much come to a halt, but Trump hasn't given up yet. Big shocker there, right? In mid-December, the president had a meeting with a group of advisors in the Oval Office to discuss several disturbing scenarios, including one suggestion by Michael Flynn regarding the possible use of the military to seize voting machines declare martial law and potentially redo the election in certain battleground states. Now, it's important to note that this idea of using martial law to overturn an American election was shot down by other Trump advisors. But all of this continues to set a terrible and potentially destructive precedent. And, you know, those who have witnessed authoritarian regimes reported on them or who study them for a living recognize the implications of these efforts to subvert our democracy. So let me give you a small example. I've told you in previous episodes that my parents grew up in the Philippines, right? So my mom is having these flashbacks to 1970s Manila, early 1970s Manila, when President Ferdinand Marcos started his dictatorship with martial law. As my mom says, I came to the United States to get away from martial law, and now it's trying to follow me. (laughs) I never thought I would see this in America. Right? Mm -hmm. And she's not alone. So many folks think this kind of power play could not happen here. But you know what? Ralph and I are calling this what it is. This is an attempted coup. It's a chaotic one, and because it's drawn out and it's failing, many folks are dismissing it. And to drive this point home, we're going to quote Yale professor Timothy Snyder. Do you guys know him? He's a historian who writes extensively about fascism. And perhaps his most popular book is called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. You can look that one up on any sort of website that sells books. And he also has a really extensive website himself. Now, Snyder posted a series of tweets on November 10th that rattled a lot of people. 
And at the time of this recording, they're still pinned to the top of his Twitter feed, so you guys can head there to check them out if you're interested. I'm just going to read three, right? Here we go. What Donald Trump is attempting to do has a name, coup d'etat. Poorly organized though it may seem, it is not bound to fail. It must be made to fail. Coups are defeated quickly or not at all. While they take place, we are meant to look away, as many of us are doing. When they are complete, we are powerless. American exceptionalism prevents us from seeing basic truths. So a few days after he posted the entire thread, CNN interviewed him about this whole tweet storm. And Snyder talked more about how American exceptionalism blinds us. He said, Americans have many talents, but unfortunately, one of our talents is sleepwalking. We have a tendency to say, well, this isn't really happening. This guy couldn't really be doing this. And if it is happening, somehow the institutions or somebody else is going to save us. And this idea that a coup couldn't possibly happen here in America is what drives me and Ralph to sit with you guys today. Because the truth is, we have had coups in America before, both successful and attempted. But because this country hasn't gone through the process of truth and reconciliation, not enough people know this. And as you'll hear in a minute, this is deeply uncomfortable history. So it's largely glossed over in high school classrooms and by the news media. So guess what Ralph and I are going to do for the rest of this episode? You guessed it. Catch you up to speed on American coups. Yeah, because a failure to see this truth does make the country vulnerable to what may lie ahead. So we're going to start by looking back once again at the Reconstruction Era, the first and ultimately unsuccessful attempt at racially integrating the United States after the Civil War. The end of Reconstruction was the Redeemer Movement, which essentially was a series of coups that were aimed at taking control of local and state governments by force. Let me be clear, this was a long-term action aimed at reclaiming political power in the southeastern United States for the Democratic Party, which at the time was the party of former slave owners. These coups were violent and sustained and ultimately accepted by the nation at large. And then by embracing the lost cause narrative, America essentially signaled that it was okay with what happened down there. So Ralph, give us a little more information. How long did the coups take place, and how many are we talking about? Well, there there were several in state and local areas, too many to count for this podcast, so I couldn't give you an accurate number, but you're easily in the dozens here, probably more. It was a strategy of resistance to the Reconstruction era and the Reconstruction amendments and laws that quickly metastasized into a repeatable strategy that helped to claim political power in that region. It went on for more than 30 years. So a decent timeline to think about would be roughly 1870 until the turn of the century. So I'll try to give you kind of a few important ones to to kind of give you a timeline to follow. The first one is kind of really at the beginning of Reconstruction, and that was the New Orleans Massacre of 1866. This happened during the initial battle over Reconstruction when congressional Republicans were fighting with Andrew Johnson's administration over who would control Reconstruction right after the Civil War. Now, guys, remember, this was a year after Abraham Lincoln died. So at the time, the Republicans literally were the party of Lincoln, right? And Andrew Johnson, who became president after Lincoln, was a Democrat. 
Right. They ran together on a on a union unity kind of ticket. That's why Lincoln chose Johnson, who was a Democrat from Tennessee. He was quite racist, but he was also from Tennessee and was still part of the union, didn't want to break off the Confederacy. That's kind of the short version of why they did it that way. Right. And just to be clear, I mean, when Ralph is saying he chose Johnson, he means that Lincoln chose Johnson to be his vice yes. president, so they ran together on that unity ticket. Exactly. So Johnson, when he assumed the presidency, had pardoned several former Confederate officers, politicians, and soldiers. And in places like Louisiana, those people reassumed their political power and promptly passed what was called the Black Codes. And for those of you who don't know, the Black Codes were laws that curtailed the freedom of black people. So this is after the Civil War, right? They're not enslaved at this point. But black people also did not have equal treatment under the law. Think limited voting rights, restrictions on their movement, legal avenues to commit them to involuntary labor. I mean, you guys get the picture. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's worse the more you read about it. In several states, the black codes were literally the same as the old slave codes in these states. And they would take the text and they'd cross out the word slave and replace it with the word black, and the rest of the text was identical. So Louisiana Republicans were concerned about losing political power in Johnson's very lenient version of Reconstruction, and newly freed former slaves wanted political power and wanted the black codes eradicated. So they all went to the Louisiana State Republican Convention, which was being held at a building known as the Mechanics Institute in downtown New Orleans. One of the items on the agenda for the party was changing the state constitution including voting rights for all citizens, including newly freed slaves. So almost 100 black men, several of them veteran Union soldiers, walked to the Institute to take part in this convention. Once they were there, they were caught in an ambush, a premeditated assault that was partly said to be orchestrated by the mayor of New Orleans and the chief of police of New Orleans. They'd been recruiting former Confederate soldiers into their ranks. Police and firemen surrounded the Mechanics Institute building, and then they attacked. It's estimated that 50 people were killed and over 100 badly injured. And very brutal injuries, too. We're talking about heads smashed by bricks, bodies riddled with bullets, and wounds from bayonets. Their goal was political power. The ex-Confederates wanted the power to write the new state constitution as they saw fit. They did not reach their goal initially. The United States Congress, once they heard about what happened at the Mechanics Institute massacre and of other similar outbreaks of violence in the South, drastically amended their view and methods of reconstruction. They fully engaged and confronted President Johnson, pushed for a more radical reconstruction, and added more Union troops to the South. But this fight was far from over. That battle for control in the South intensified as Ulysses Grant assumed the presidency in 1869. Now, you folks remember Grant as the Union general who won the Civil War, right? He championed Reconstruction during his first term. And under his presidency, the 14th and 15th Amendments were ratified. So former slaves were now constitutionally full citizens and had the federally protected right to vote. But... Those rights were under full assault from the moment they became law. Yes, and this is going to bring us back to New Orleans, which was again a flashpoint in this battle. 
There was a contested gubernatorial election in 1872, in which the Federalist Republican, whose name was William Pitt Kellogg, beat the conservative Democrat by the name of John McHenry. There were charges of, guess what, election fraud going back and forth, and they sound very similar to what you see today. Voter intimidation at polling places, charges of illegal voting, the works. So in 1874, two years later, the Democratic Party reached out to a militia group in the area that called themselves the White League. The White League was made up of mostly former Confederate soldiers, and the aim was once again to retake political power by force. So on September 14th of 1874, a group of between 5,000 and 8,000 White Leaguers took to Canal Street where they were opposed by a group of about 3,500 state militia and local law enforcement. The state troops were outnumbered, and so they were beaten, and there were more than 100 casualties. And for a few days, the government of the state of Louisiana had been successfully overthrown. The White League took charge. Mm -hmm. President Grant responded by sending Union troops down to New Orleans a few days later to end the conflict, and the White Leaguers had dispersed before the troops arrived. But... They did so under a negotiated agreement. None of them were arrested, and practically speaking, the coup was successful. The Republicans had no enforcement power for the laws outside of city limits, and their influence was limited throughout the state. Now, this kind of sustained action took place all over the South. For instance, in September of 1875, there was a political rally just outside of Clinton, Mississippi, and it became the scene of an instigated riot by Democratic supporters. This riot turned into a massacre, and this massacre extended all the way to the Mississippi elections that November. That violence foreshadowed a victory for Democrats in November in Mississippi, and that was seen as the first enactment of what was known in the South as the Mississippi Plan. And this is when the Redeemers set out to take control of state government in the South by any means necessary, and they were going to follow the plan of what had happened in Clinton, Mississippi. And one of the biggest reasons it worked, well, let me explain to you. Despite eyewitness testimony and requests for federal troops to quell the violence in Mississippi in 1875, this is when President Grant said the following, the whole public are tired out with these annual autumnal outbreaks in the South. And then Grant started the policy of non-intervention in the South. The will of the federal government had been broken, and the Redeemers saw the opportunity. So all over the South, they started enacting their own version of the Mississippi Plan, and it kept working. Election by election, state by state, year by year, they seized control of Southern governments. Now, after Grant left office... Rutherford B. Hayes assumed the presidency in one of the most contested and one of the most consequential elections in U.S. history. We'll save that saga for another episode because it's actually pretty relevant to what's going on today. Um, but today we're just going to stick with saying this. Hayes took power by agreeing to the Compromise of 1877, which ended Reconstruction and removed the federal troops from the South for good. Right, and that was key because the lack of federal troops allowed these Southern coups to continue through the 1880s and 1890s. And one of the most well-known happened in Wilmington, North Carolina, which was that state's largest city at that time. 
Wilmington was also one of the last southern cities where black citizens still held political, financial, and social power. So it was kind of seen as a prize then. Yeah. I mean, Wilmington was key. Even in the Civil War, it had a huge port. It was one of the last ports the Union Army had to destroy to win the war. So I'll try to set the scene for you. Statewide, North Carolina's Democrats had feared the growth of what was then known as fusion coalitions that were happening between populists and Republicans, specifically black Republicans who were unhappy with their party's end of reconstruction strategy, let's say, but still justifiably wary of the Democrats. So the fusionists had won control of North Carolina's state legislature in 1894 and had helped the state elect a Republican governor in 1896. It was his first Republican governor since the end of Reconstruction. This was not sitting well with the Democratic Party and the white populace who supported the Democratic Party. So in November of 1898, heading into that year's election, White supremacists carried out a massacre and a blatant coup d'etat of Wilmington's local government. And this was mirrored by a coordinated push by the Democratic Party to take political power throughout the entire state of North Carolina. Wilmington's white business community was coordinating with a violent faction known as the Red Shirts. Among their tactics were a propaganda campaign aimed at inflaming white voters with blatant racist demagoguery, intimidation of black voters to prevent them from going to the voting polls and threats to white voters to vote Democratic or not to vote at all. And this got really serious and really dangerous in the town of Wilmington, where there was a significant black population that had political and financial strength. It was a thriving community, mixed community at the time. Leading up to the election, the red shirts, as well as other affiliated groups, blocked access and egress in and out of Wilmington. They refused to sell arms to black residents who mostly just had some older Civil War Union era rifles or hunting weapons to defend themselves. And what I mean by that is a black citizen would go to a gun store and the owner of the gun store was a supporter of the red shirts or the Democrats, would not sell them weapons. Even when they tried to go to Winchester Arms and order from the big company, the big company would refer them to the local branch. The local branch would say, I have your name and I'm not selling you weapons, but now I know your name and I know you're looking for weapons. See how this worked? Yep. Yeah. So black residents were also opposed by elected politicians, such as Congressman W.W. W. Kitchen, who had declared, before we allow the Negroes to control this state as they do now, we will kill enough of them that there will not be enough left to bury them. Just to give you a sense of how this went in the aftermath, Kitchen later became governor of North Carolina in 1909. Unfortunately, and needless to say, the tactics again worked. Democrats won the election, and immediately the supporting groups put out a document that they called the White Declaration of Independence. This document advocated for stripping black residents of their voting rights stripping them of any prime employment opportunities that could go to white citizens and an immediate overthrow of the remaining interracial government. They also wanted the city's black-owned newspaper closed. It was called the Wilmington Record. They wanted it closed and they wanted the printing press sent out of town. So these groups delivered the White Declaration of Independence to a group called the Committee of Colored Citizens. It was a group of 
prominent black residents. And they were given instructions to comply with the wishes of the mob within 12 hours. When black residents did not immediately comply, 2,000 white men marched to the printing office of the Wilmington Record, which, as I said before, is the city's black-owned newspaper. They broke in and they burned the building. And within the day, violence had broken out all over town and the mob's leaders carried out their coup of the city's government. They forced elected Republicans, black and white, to resign and created an ad hoc group of Democrats who decided who would take up those vacated offices. Wow, man. You know, I can't even imagine how terrifying it must have been for black families in Wilmington at this time. So what's the time frame we're talking about? Because I, I sense that if you're a black family, you're seeing um, all this unrest start to bubble up. You're trying to arm yourselves, like you were saying. You can't get any arms. And then all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose, right? Yeah. I mean, did this all happen in what, the span of a week? Or what are you thinking? The, the lead up to the election was several months, of course. But mm-hmm. post-election, you're talking a matter of days. Yeah. So, I mean, imagine, guys, imagine your lives being turned upside down like that, just in a matter of days, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so how many people died? Well, the reported total is about 60 people killed. Unreported, there are probably a lot more than that, but that's what's kind of was confirmed in the newspapers at the time. Mobs were attacking in cities, predominantly black neighborhoods. They were armed with shotguns. There was even the story of one of these groups being gifted a Gatling gun, um, which was an early, one of the early um, machine guns, basically. Machine gun that's um, like a military style gun. You, You put it on a stand and... Yeah, seen and you see them a lot in World War One. So, imagine—I mean, imagine facing something like that. So, what you had here is a violent, premeditated overthrow of the government in Wilmington, and there was no response forthcoming to stop this illegal power grab. Remember, Reconstruction is long over by now, so there's no federal troops in the South to defend the citizens who were killed or lost their homes, possessions, businesses as they were run out of town. North Carolina's governor did not ask for aid. So William McKinley, who was the president at the time, didn't send any aid. And by the spring of 1899, the coup was complete with formal elections that were held and gave the conspirators who had taken over the political offices by force a veneer of legitimacy. And just so you guys are clear, Ralph is sitting here making air quotes with his fingers as he talked about these elections. Yeah, exactly. So... The state legislature of North Carolina was now back in Democratic control, and they quickly enacted North Carolina's first Jim Crow legislation, and it was centered on the separation of black and white people in train passenger cars. New election laws followed that limited Republican power, splintered the fusion movement, and then the state constitution was amended to disenfranchise black voters in 1900. So after that victory... Democrats controlled local and statewide affairs in North Carolina until the Civil Rights era. And so we went from the slave codes to the black codes to Jim Crow. Right. Pretty much up until Martin Luther King. Right up until Martin Luther King in the 60s, yes. And here's a final point that drives home what we've been saying about how the lost cause narrative is used to shield this country from its history. Here's a brief coda about the history that's all around you in New Orleans. The Mechanics Institute building that I talked about during the uh, massacre of 1866, that's still there. It is now a four-star hotel. 
and that 1874 uprising in New Orleans? Well, by 1891, that event had been dubbed the Battle of Liberty Place, and local officials had a monument erected at Canal Street where the white shirts first assembled to begin their coup. Then, in 1932, locals added an inscription to that monument, and it ended with this statement. United States troops took over the state government and reinstated the usurpers, but the national election of November 1876 recognized white supremacy in the South and gave us our state. Now, this monument was moved and the wording was changed in 1993. And in 2017, it was removed from the public and placed into storage. That removal in 2017 was done at night. And the workers who were removing that monument had to wear bulletproof jackets and they did the removal under police protection. All of that to honor the heritage of a coup. So speaking of history, guys, now, as you can tell from the Redeemer movement, America is no stranger to coups at the local and state level. But how many of you know about the presidential level? How many of you know about the business plot, which was the attempted coup against Franklin Delano Roosevelt? So yesterday I did a little test. I got on Google and I Googled the business plot and its various players just to see who has referenced it in light of Trump's attempted coup today. And I didn't see anything from national mainstream media. This was really disappointing to me. Because today's battle for the White House is what news organizations call a quote-unquote news hook. It's an opportunity to widen the lens a little, to add some context, and to educate the public. Um, it could be just a short paragraph that leads with something like, you know, this isn't the first time a power struggle has led to an attempted coup of an American president, and briefly note the business plot and FDR before coming back to more details of what's going on in today's power struggle. And I think you guys can tell that Ralph and I are really big fans of adding this type of historical context to news stories. And that comes from studying under the late, great Susan Rasky at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. Before she became our professor, she'd been a congressional correspondent at the New York Times. And guys, she was just an incredible teacher. I could tell you many, many stories about Susan, and I know Ralph can too, Yeah. but <laughs> there's really one that applies here. And she said once to me that whenever she meets a young person who is really interested in becoming a journalist, she would tell them, don't study journalism, study history. And at the time, you know, we're talking about 1999 here, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> um, I definitely did not appreciate what she meant but now, after having gone through all these different political changes and all these other changes in the world since then, and now that we've started this podcast, <laughs> we really, really understand what she meant. Um, but anyway, that's, that's just an aside. I'll take any opportunity I can to, to give a shout out to Rasky. Yeah. <laughs> but all right. So getting back to the subject at hand. Ralph, I wanted to ask you about broadcast media, because while I didn't see anything in print media... Um, at the national mainstream level, what would have you seen? I think you said you saw something on MSNBC? I spotted something one time on MSNBC. I believe it was right after Thanksgiving. The uh, journalist Joshua Johnson, he was talking to a historian on his show as Trump's legal team was working on one of these various maneuvers to stay in the White House. And 
Johnson mentioned the business plot and said he was surprised that it wasn't talked about more. He'd kind of just discovered it recently at, at, at the time of the broadcast. Now, I wouldn't have known this if I hadn't seen it live because to this day I cannot find that clip online. I've been looking. But I do think that talking about any coordinated plans to overthrow the elected government coming from big finance like that would be seen unfavorably by the kind of financial entities that own the major media corporations of today. All right. Um, but look, it's, it's entirely possible that Ralph and I have missed a national news story that referenced the business plot. And if any of you guys see or hear mention of it in stories about Trump's attempted coup, you know, let us know. Send us an email at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com. Because if someone is doing this well, we want to go ahead and give them a shout out. All right, Ralph, back to you and just come on and tell us about the business plot. Okay, so the business plot. The, the political atmosphere in America and really in the world at that time was far graver than many people realize. And we're talking about the end of the 20s leading into the 30s. The stock market crash of 1929 kicked off a worldwide depression and many European governments were either already going authoritarian or were looking into authoritarian or in the process of turning into authoritarian governments. You're talking about Benito Mussolini, who'd been in control of Italy since the 20s. Adolf Hitler was set to come into power in Germany. A couple of years later, there was a civil war in Spain where um, Francisco Franco took over um, and overthrew the government there, and he ruled for several decades, actually. Russia had already moved from a monarchy to the world's first communist government, and by this time was known as the Soviet Union, and by this time, Joseph Stalin had power in Russia. So you're talking about authoritarian version of communism, whatever you think of communism, what have you. So there was growing authoritarian sentiment here in the U.S. as well. I mean, the American Communist Party was adding members Father Charles Coughlin, who was a very famous media figure and also a priest, which is why he was known as Father. Um, he had a radio broadcast that was second in the nation to FDRs in terms of popularity for many years. And Hitler's Nazi party had political backing from leading industrialists like Henry Ford and famed aviator Charles Lindbergh. By the mid-30s, both Benito Mussolini and Hitler had been named Time Magazine's Man of the Year, which was a big deal at that time. I'd, I'd argue it's still a big deal now. Still a big deal now, <laughs> yes, for sure. But I think at that time, maybe more elevated, since radio broadcast was just coming into vogue, print was so dominant, that meant a lot. So here's the atmosphere that leaves an opening in America. What's going to happen? And into this breach stepped Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now, he was a progressive Democrat with some newer ideas. Even before he'd become president, he believed that direct intervention from the federal government was urgently needed to escape the Great Depression. And back in 1930, while he was still governor of New York, he had said, now, quote, there is no question in my mind that it is time for the country to become fairly radical for a generation. So he runs in the 1932 election and he beats Herbert Hoover. FDR is taking office the following spring, which is March of 1933, and he implemented many new policies that were massively unpopular with big business and finance. We're talking about the Civilian Conservation Corps, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, and the National Recovery Act, which made it legal for workers to form unions at their workplaces. He also created at that time the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which we all know is the FDIC. 
that was there to protect everyone's bank deposits. This is the era of bank runs. So they put the FDIC in to backstop the banks. The other financial change that he made was taking the United States off of the gold standard. Now, this really infuriated Wall Street and big business types who preferred Herbert Hoover's laissez-faire approach. Political opposition began pretty much instantly on campaign speeches and in the media. But a more sinister plan of opposition was also proposed, and we know about it thanks to a man named General Smedley Butler. Now, guys, how many of you know Smedley Butler? Because in our opinion, in our humble opinion, this is a name that all Americans should know. And not just because he thwarted a coup against an American president, as Ralph is going to tell you about in a minute. But Butler also wrote a really frank assessment about wars and who gets rich from them. So when you get some time, look up his book called War is a Racket. We'll save that discussion for another time, but I just wanted to put that on your radar. Yeah. Smedley Butler was not an ordinary general. He started his military career during the Spanish-American and Philippine-American wars that came at the beginning of the 20th century. And Butler's rise in rank and stature mirrored America's more imperialist moves in the first part of the 20th century. He served in China during the Boxer Rebellion. He took part in several conflicts down in Central and South America and served with the U.S. Army, of course, in France during World War I. His last years of service, which ended in his retirement in 1931, were focused on supporting World War I veterans who were looking to get an early payout of their promised bonuses. The federal government had promised the World War I vets a bonus that was going to be paid out in the 1940s. But after the onset of the Depression and several years without work, those vets marched to Washington, D.C. to seek their bonus payouts early so they could survive. They were called, if you've seen this in history, the Bonus Army. And the Bonus Army was a movement that was eventually put down by the standing U.S. Army. Herbert Hoover had nothing to offer the vets. FDR was different, but when FDR first took office, this problem remained. The vets wanted to march to D.C. again, and the American Legion was part of that effort. And this is how Butler, who had been a Republican all his life generally up to this point, was initially targeted. So Butler stated in early July of 1933, he was approached by two American Legion members who also had ties to Wall Street financiers. Their names were Bill Doyle and Gerald McGuire. The two wanted Butler to speak at a Legion convention in Chicago, which Butler was open to, but they gave him a speech to deliver that seemed heavy on talking points that were against FDR's new policies, specifically the gold standard. And they also mentioned having more than $100,000 for travel expenses that could get several hundred Legionnaires to Butler's speech. And this made Butler suspicious. That was too much money for rank-and-file everyday Legion members to come up with on their own. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking, this is the 1930s, yeah. right? We're in the middle of the Great Depression, right? Mm -hmm. And $100,000 for travel expenses? I mean, how much is $100,000 worth today? Yeah, I was just looking that up as you were saying that. And on the CPI inflation calculator that I pulled up, $100,000 in 1933 is worth a little bit over $2 million today. $2 million. So really, how $2 million, how many 
legionnaires right. can you get to Washington, D.C. with $2 million? Right? Who's got the ability to pull up $2 million on demand as needed in the middle of the Depression? Right. We're talking about year four yeah. of the Depression. Exactly. So now you guys see exactly why Butler was suspicious. Yeah, that's why his hackles went up. So Butler spent some time after that trying to determine who the financial backers of this whole thing were, and he found them coming from big business. He met with a man named Robert Clark who had inherited a small fortune from the Singer Sewing Machine Company's estate. So Clark sent McGuire to Europe for several months so that McGuire could observe the growing authoritarianism there. And this is, again, the early 30s. So when McGuire returned from Europe, he met with Smedley Butler again with a new proposal. He said, why don't you assemble a military force of about a half million veterans and we can use them to throw FDR out of office. McGuire admitted to Butler that his backing came from captains of industry and estimated that he could raise hundreds of millions of dollars to achieve this if he had to. And again, this is yeah. the Great Depression. What's hundreds of millions of dollars compared to today, right? Exactly. Who has access to that money at that kind of time? So Butler kept digging for information. He's kind of playing along. And the plotters, he found, wanted to use the national press to begin their campaign. They wanted to start with an announcement about the League of Businessmen that were fatigued by the president's reckless economic reforms. Next step they wanted to do would be plant stories about Roosevelt's ill health. And they wanted to use the doubts of the public that would be created by these stories to ask Butler to march into the Capitol with this veteran army and assume control. In the minds of the plotters, this would be a bloodless coup. FDR would be permitted a ceremonial position while the country was steered in a more proper direction to them. Proper, again, being in air quotes. Right, in air quotes here. And some of the names that have come up during this interest in the business plot, as far as the kind of people behind it, DuPont, Rockefeller, Westinghouse, there were other names mentioned as possible collaborators, but it was never proved. So Butler took the information that he'd gathered to the federal government and started trying to blow the whistle. First place he took his information was J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI. Then he took it to members of Congress. And in 1934, there was a hearing held in the House of Representatives by the McCormick-Dickstein Committee and. You may not know about that committee now. It has a more famous name that evolved later on. This is the committee that eventually became the House Committee on Un-American Activities. This is the committee where in the late 1940s, politicians like Richard Nixon launched their political careers going after communists in the government. The final report from this committee in 1934 stated the following. There is no question that these attempts were discussed were planned, and may have been placed in execution when and if the financial backers deemed it expedient. However, none of the suspected leaders were ever brought in to testify, let alone charged, and the informational file was buried after the committee disbanded. Even FDR, who was the target of the plot, helped to suppress the transcripts from this committee for concern about its impact on the nation at a time of worldwide political instability. And so, like many other stories of this kind, it's never really entered the American consciousness in the way that it probably should have. Mm -hmm. So, 
There you have it, guys. As you've just learned, political takeovers are not out of the realm in America, as they're not out of the realm in any other country. And to think otherwise is the most dangerous aspect of the period that we are in today. The Trump team's attempts to subvert the election are not an anomaly, and believing in American exceptionalism to the point where we dismiss their actions makes us vulnerable to more unrest in the future. We're left now with a lack of trust in the integrity of our elections, and that invites both voter apathy and a view that violence is needed to return validity to the process. It's a recipe for unstable transfers of power, and it can come from any segment of society where people seek to take and use political power by any means necessary. I think your last point is really important. This can come from any segment of society seeking power. It's not just a phenomenon that's tied to Donald Trump. Yeah. So basically, we we just have to be vigilant and aware. And uh, we're going to give Timothy Snyder the last word today. Again, from his uh, numerous tweets on November 10th, he said, In an authoritarian situation, the election is only round one. You don't win by winning round one. It is up to civil society organized citizens, to defend the vote and to peacefully defend democracy. Dance after the wedding and not before. Take responsibility, Americans. And that's our show. Remember, we want to take your questions, so drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com. Tell us something like, hey, Ralph and Joan, can you catch me up to speed on X, Y, or Z? And please like and subscribe to the podcast which you can now find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more of your favorite platforms. Thanks again for spending time with us today and talk to you again soon. 